get the word. Alright. You know, sometimes when you're in church, you get distracted by different things. And so you start noticing your fingernails. Like, oh, I haven't cleaned them. Things like that. But let's, let's pay attention to the word this morning. Thanks, Pastor Paul, for the intro. And um, are we ready to hear the word? Yes. This side, are we cool? Yep. <laughs> it's not too hot, right? Taffy, you're good there. Trying to connect with people. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, for the preaching of your word. We pray for the spirit of revelation, wisdom, understanding this morning. The entrance of your word brings light. And so, Father, we are open today. Would you speak to us? Would you reveal your heart to the church this morning? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Great. Um, we are now finishing off this trilogy or three-part series. Ended up being three parts. Um, and we are talking about the other stuff of life. Yes. If you are not here in the past two weeks, I want to encourage you to go onto our website, www.godchurch.co.za. Under sermons, you can see all our sermons. Um, if you miss church, catch up on the website and um, get... Uh, to understand what God says to the church in your absence. Um, yeah, so in the past two weeks, we covered t- a number of things. Firstly, we spoke about uh, keeping the main thing, the main thing, which is your faith, your faith in Jesus. And we said, how are you doing with regards to your walk with the Lord Jesus? And then we went on to, to deal with the other stuff of life. We covered moral excellence, uh, knowledge, self-control, and patient endurance. And this morning we'll cover the last three. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. That was our anchor scripture, and that's where we're going to go this morning. Alright. In view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence, and moral excellence with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with patient endurance, and patient endurance with godliness. So that's our, our, our fifth point today. We'll be looking at this uh, other stuff of life called godliness. When one is asked to define godliness, it is easy to quickly jump to the definition that says it is equivalent to Christian character. If I will ask you today, can you define to me what, godly, what godliness is all about, you can easily tell me it is Christian character. Yes, you'll be quite right. Godliness is certainly including Christian character, but there is more to it than that. There's another even more fundamental dimension of godliness than just godly character. Now, I'd like to define God, a godly life as one that is entirely dedicated to God. In other words, it is a life that is unwavering, devoted to God. It is a life that is fully given to God. So before we even talk about Christian character, the starting point is your devotion to God. Praise the Lord. Now, how can I explain this? I want to take you to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 5, verse 21. There is a story of a man by the name of Enoch. If you do not know Enoch, Enoch was a man that was 
known by certain traits in his life. Genesis 5 verse 21, the Bible says, When Enoch was 65 years old, he became a father of Methuselah. At 65, I don't think any one of us here is 65. But he became a father of, of, a man, of a man by the name of Methuselah. After the birth of Methuselah, Enoch lived in close fellowship with God. Other versions say he walked with God for another 300 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Enoch lived 365 years walking in close fellowship with God. Then one day he disappeared because God took him. You see, Moses is the one who wrote the book of Genesis and he describes Enoch twice as saying he fellowshiped with God. He said here Enoch had close fellowship with God. Other versions say Enoch walked with God. Later on in the New Testament, in the hall of faith, this Enoch is described as one who pleased God. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 5. It was by faith that Enoch was taken up to heaven without dying. He disappeared because God took him. For before he was taken up, he was known as a person who pleased God. Now there are two elements that are coming out of these two, -ish, two scriptures. The one says Enoch had a close fellowship with God. You see, when you are in close fellowship with somebody, it means you are in close communion with that individual. It means that there is nothing that you do without consulting that person. It means that you enjoy their presence. It means that you phone them three times during the day when you're at work saying, I miss you. I can't wait to get home and be with you. This is how Enoch walked with God. And I would like to describe a godly life as one where one is, is fellowshiping with God and two, you are well pleasing before God. This morning I want to ask you a question. How closely are you walking with God? Enoch was described as a man who walked with God to such an extent that God said, I can't afford to continue seeing you far away on earth. I want you to come close to where I am. And God took him from earth. It meant this relationship was so deep that God says, this man is not going to see decay. Because of the relationship I have with Enoch, I'm going to translate him into a place where I have with him 24-7. That is how Enoch walked with God. You know what we do sometimes? We spend God, with time with God right in the morning in our closets, behind closed doors, and then we go to work, we leave him in the, close, in the closet. How much time do we give to God during the day? How much of our heart does God have during the day when we do what we do? Or we leave God in our prayer room and then we do our life without God and then in the night we go back to where God was. But the Bible says Enoch had close fellowship with God. Somebody says fellowship is like two men who are in a small boat rowing on a, on a, on a lake. It's just the two of them. 
You see, when you walk with God so closely, you become pleasing unto Him. You see, when you're talking about pleasing God, there's a place where the Bible says it is impossible to please God without faith. It therefore means if I am to fellowship with God, there is a type of life that I must live that becomes pleasing to God. It means that the way that I think, the what I meditate about on my heart has to do with believing God that he's a good God. You see, you cannot fellowship with me if you think I'm a bad chap. If you think that I don't have good intentions for you, you will not enjoy my presence. If you think that this man doesn't meet up to what we think him of, you will not enjoy my presence. If you see me as a man who doesn't keep his own word, you will not enjoy my company. So when you're talking about fellowshipping with God, it's looking at God and having the right view of God. You see, when you have the right view of God, it doesn't matter what happens to you, you quickly jump to God. You see, our perception of God determines of how much we expose God to our situations. You see, when you trust me, and you trust my advice, before you make certain moves in your life, guess what? You pick up the phone, and you say, Michael, this is what I'm thinking of doing. I just want to pick your brain. What do you think? You see, when you view God aright, there is no goes there's no area that God cannot go in your life it means when you're watching a movie you invite God with you it means when you're listening to certain music God is listening with you it means you can no longer just listen to certain things because you are now aware of God in your life you then say is Jesus comfortable with what I am watching then you realize Jesus will tell you this is not for us to consume. I remember taking my kids for a movie, Andrew and Bernice, and 15 minutes into the movie, I can see something is not right. This is for kids, but the content is not meant for kids. I said to Andrew and Bernice, guys, get your popcorns, let's go. We left the movie theater because I felt this is not good for us to consume. You see, when you fellowship with God, you'll allow God to speak into everything that you do. Glory be to God. You allow God to shape what happens in your mind. The meditations of your heart become influenced by God. You see, the more time you spend with God, the more you become like God. When you look at people who've been married long enough, they start looking alike. They start talking like the husband or the wife. When they're in the crowd, it's just a matter of a look and they know what the husband is thinking of. That's what happens when people walk in close proximity. When you sit under a certain ministry long enough, you start preaching like the preacher in that that church. Even your dress code can change. Your hairstyle changes. Why? You're being exposed to this for a long time. You see, sometimes the things that we see outside is a reflection of the fellowship that we're involved in. Hallelujah. It is a reflection of the fellowship that we're involved in. So when you're speaking of godliness, 
I'm talking about a life that is wholly given to God. So whatever you do, you do it in the light of God. It becomes an audience of one. Somebody might not applaud you for what you're doing, but you're saying, I don't really mind if you don't applaud me. My father is applauding me for what I'm doing right now. Glory be to God. So you're more concerned about God's opinion than public opinion. You see, we get so caught up in public relations to a point where we miss out on what God wants us to do. Because we tend to ask questions, what are they saying about me? But let's change that question, what is heaven saying about me? That is what godliness is all about. You see, it's a complete devotion to God. And this complete devotion to God will drive everything that we do. It's a burning desire to be like Jesus. You see, we have people who want to be a cheap version of other people. You want to be a cheap version of somebody else. But you see, if you want to be a godly person, you aspire to reflect the true image of Jesus. You see, the Bible says you are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. An ambassador doesn't stand for his own ideas. An ambassador has been sent by a country to represent the views and the policies of the country. So if you're an ambassador of the kingdom of God, I want to ask you a question. Whose views do you represent in that boardroom? You see, the Bible talks about do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be ye transformed by the renewal of your mind. You see, the moment you got born again, there is a shift that that is expected in the way that we think. I remember talking to somebody and I said, but what you're doing right now, you're behaving like a non-believer. The thing that you're doing right here is not in line with what you're supposed to be doing as a child of God. But when you get born again, your spirit man gets regenerated. Your spirit man is made anew. But your mind hasn't been brainwashed. That is why we need to put an effort for us to line up our thoughts with the thoughts of God. And that's the whole process of godliness, isn't it? Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that's one I was paraphrasing right now. It says here, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Be thou transformed by the renewal of your minds. There is a need for us to renew the way we think. What is acceptable somewhere else should not be acceptable in your house. You see, as, as parents, we've got to come to a place where we have rules in our houses. Where we say, in our house, this is how we do things. As long as you're under my roof, this will not go. You can do that the moment you walk out of my house. It's your choice. But under my roof, you eat my food, you sleep on my bed, you don't do that. (laughs) 
Well, my kids, my kids are not yet at that point where I can say such things. <laughs> but as we grow, as our kids grow, they've got to understand certain boundaries. And when you walk with God, He is going to say certain things to you. He is going to place a demand over your life. You see, the Bible says, when Paul says here, everything is permissible. Everything is okay. There's nothing wrong with this. But for the sake of what I've believed in, I'm not going to do that. You see, there are certain things that are not just seen in themselves, but you're saying where I am going and what God has called me to do, I cannot live like this. It can be acceptable for you, but with the, what God is doing in my life, I cannot do that. Can you look into your life today and say the stuff that you're doing, do you really need to do that? Praise the Lord. You see, the whole issue of godliness brings us to a place where Paul would say, it's no longer I that lives, but Christ that lives in me. You see, when you are fully devoted to God, you surrender certain rights to God and say, I allow you to come and live inside of me. Though I'm the one who is living, but I want, to you, I want you to live in me. You see, pursuing godliness will influence, I've said this again, the meditations of our hearts, the words of our mouths, the thoughts that we allow to come into our minds. Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 says here, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. What do we spend our minds on? Here is what we should spend our mind on. Is it pure? Is it right? It's not every good thing that is right. There are certain good things that are not right. And we've got to be able to differentiate those things. So that is the whole issue of godliness that the Apostle Peter is saying you need to add godliness to your faith. My sixth point. Now he says here, supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with patient endurance and patient endurance with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection. Add to your faith. This thing called brotherly love, brotherly affection. One would think this is a basic issue. Why should we even talk about brotherly love? Alas, we need to talk about it. You see, there's nothing that gets close to defining us as believers as this thing called brotherly love. There's nothing that clearly defines you better than brotherly love. This is the love that exists between you and me. The love that exists between Christian brothers. And yet, it's an area that we struggle with. Brotherly love. 1 John chapter 3 verse 10. John speaks a lot about love, especially chapter 3, chapter 4. You can hear him talking about love here. He says here, so now we can tell who are children of God and who are children of the devil? Hmm. That's a bit rough right there. John is saying, people of God, we don't need to do a lot of exercises. We know the differentiator between people of God 
and people of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. Anyone who does not love others, other believers does not belong to God. You see, there's nothing as disappointing as a self-acclaimed believer who is devoid of love. It's a contradiction. It's a travesty of theology to say, I'm a Christian and yet I can't love. Let's take it deeper. Verse 14 of 1 John chapter 3. If we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we have passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. That's not me. If it was me, I would have skipped this year. <laughs> but we believe in the full counsel of the word. So we can't pass certain scriptures. I'm going to read verse 15 again. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. And you know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. Have you heard people say, I love God with all my heart. I love God. He's, he's my father. But I can't stand Christians. I can't stand believers. Guess what? Your level of brotherly love is a real litmus test of your love for God. It determines the quality of your relationship with God. I'm going to repeat that. Your level of brotherly love is a real litmus test for your, for your test, for your love of God. The way you love me determines the quality of your love for God. Why do I say that? First John chapter 4 verse 20 says, If someone says I love God but hates a Christian brother or sister, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? I want you to examine yourself this morning. Do you feel more comfortable to be amongst non-believers than you are comfortable amongst believers? Are you more inclined to go bride with non-believers than you are inclined to bride with me? This is what the Bible is saying here, that it, it cannot work to say you love God, but you cannot love the one who is created in the image of God. Hmm. Your love for your brother is a clear indication of your maturity levels in God. Your love for your brother is a clear indication of your maturity levels in God. You see, some of your greatest tests in life will come around this thing called brotherly love. Your, one of your greatest tests will come around this issue called brotherly love because you're going to be pushed in the corner and what do you do? You see, brotherly love gives us victory over issues of race and ethnic differences. It is in church where the white brother and the black brother should sit together and they don't see color as an issue. Yeah. Why? Because the Bible says when you are in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither female nor male. 
For we are all one in Christ. And yet in our churches, we are separated by what cars we drive and which suburb we come from. How many degrees do we have? What title do I have at work? Who is in my network? And what is my net worth in life? Those are the things that bring divisions in the church. And yet people come to church looking for oneness. They say, if I'm not accepted by the world, surely the church should find me acceptable. You see, there's something about brotherly love that distinguishes you and me from other people. That is why Jesus says in, Matthew, in John chapter 13, verse 34, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are all my disciples if you love one another. This means that brotherly love brings with it a standard that cannot be matched by any other love. Hallelujah. You see, it is not carrying Bibles that causes us to be seen as believers. It's not wearing tuxedos coming to church that distinguishes us to be believers. No, it's not the amount of shouting that we do in these four walls. Jesus says, when you love one another, then the world will know that you're my disciples. Hallelujah. It means that this thing that is called brotherly love cannot be found in the world. And that should be the distinguishing issue between me and my friend out there who doesn't know God. So if you are looking for a distinguisher, do not look anywhere else. Look at the issue of brother love. And I want to ask you a question as God Church. Are we comfortable with the levels of our brotherly love today? You see, brotherly love is the type of love that has no hook or conditions attached to it. Because the world will tell you, I will love you if you do this. If you do this, if you play to my tune, then I will love you. You see, some of our greatest problems in our church is okay when the church fails to live up to the standard of brotherly love. It's an issue of unmet expectations. You see, Jesus here is saying here, you've got to love one another as I have loved you. Therefore, it means something to me that I have a right to receive brotherly love from somebody here. It's my right. At the same time, I have a responsibility to give out that brotherly love. So now you look at this too. When I come to church, I'm expecting brotherly love. But at the same time, I must expect myself to give it out. To dish it out. You see, you have a right to be loved. But you have no right to be trusted. Those two things are different. Very, very different. I earn the right to be trusted. I have to earn it. But as far as love... Whether I look great or not, you've got to love me. That's what it is. Does somebody hear me this morning? I have a right to be loved. You have a right to be loved. But I have no right to be trusted. I've got to build it up. I've got to come to a place where you can trust me because I have promised before and I followed through. Therefore, your trust, trust bank, as far as I'm concerned to your life, grows. 
unmet expectations. You see, there are three levels of transition when somebody comes to church. The first transition, you come to church, you walk through that door, and you say, that church. That church called God Church. Huh, that church, I like the way they preach. You're just walking through the door, you don't identify with us. The next level is this church. I love this church. I like this church. I like what they do with our kids in God Church. That's the second level. The third level is my church. You're like, I love my church. Come to my church. You will hear the best of messages. Come to my church. We pray to the living God. You see, there are are levels. This morning, I want you to ask yourself, are you at that level saying, that church? Or you're at the level that says, this church? Or you're saying, my church? You see, the moment you say, my church, you walk through that door, you're looking for opportunities to serve. The moment you're sitting there, you're uncomfortable, like, hmm, guys, the temperatures are too high, you go to the ashes. You say, it's my home, I want my friend to be comfortable in my home. Yes. When you come to my house, I don't expect you to stand up, go get water for yourself from the fridge. No. It's my responsibility. It's my home. I want you to come back again, and therefore I'll pour out all my love to you. You see, when we remain in that place of saying that church, you will sit there and you won't even mind what happens around you. Hmm. You see, when we exercise this brotherly love, it will cure many of us from the disease called PVS. (laughs) You're going to ask me, what is PVS? It's this thing called perpetual visitor syndrome. A perpetual visitor comes to church for a year, but they still cannot identify with the church. Guys, I have a right to be loved. So after this, you've got to love me. This thing called perpetual visitor syndrome. We're coming to church for years, and yet we're still not identifying with the church. May the Lord speak to us this morning. Because we cannot give this brotherly love as long as we see ourselves as cousins in the house. Come on, go there. You see, when, when Bernice misbehaves, I'll give her a good hiding. But she will not run away from home. She will come back and still give me a hug after that fellowship. Because she's my daughter. She's mine. I'm her dad. But you see, if there is a cousin in the house, you give them a spanking, the next thing they tell you, you're not my daddy. I'm out of here. And they're gone. You can't stop them. Perpetual visitors will do that. And I know I'm not talking to perpetual visitors today. If you're there, may the Spirit of the Lord speak to you. Are we together this morning? Yes. Say hallelujah. <laughs> Brotherly love. There has to be a difference between the love we give and the love that's given outside there. Now, how does this brotherly love look like? 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. 
You can see that First John chapter 3 is packed with this issue of brotherly love. You can do a study for yourself. He says here, we know what real love is. So there's no question about whether we know this thing or not. We know it. There's a benchmark, there's a standard that Jesus set. Now the Bible says here, because Jesus gave up his life for us. That is what love is. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. You see, very interesting, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, talks about we know what love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. Therefore, you've got to give up your own life for your own brothers. John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Can't you see a trend right there? 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, John 3, verse 16, verse 17 now says, If someone has enough money to live well, do we have people here who are living well? Praise the Lord. You might not be able to answer that now, but you know you're living well. Because you have food in your fridge. When temperatures hit 6 degrees in the morning, you have a warm blanket, some electric blankets. You're living well. Now the Bible says here, if someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? How can God's love be in my heart? If I am tight-fisted with everything that I have, you hold on to that 10 rand note until it, it cries. It, it's like, let me go, let me go. We just tighten it. Huh? Like, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, another one, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. It's very easy to say, I love you, brother. I love you, brother. But talk is cheap. Now, number one, this love we are talking about is sacrificial. It is costly. There is a price to be paid. It's always free for the recipient, but costly for the source. Costly for the giver. You see, as a child of God, if we have lived lives where we want to be comfortable by ourselves, we are so fixated by our comfort, we will not open up our homes for other people. You see, if you are so into yourself and your children and your husband, you'll not be able to spare one night to minister to another family. Yeah. You see, so brotherly love is sacrificial in nature. What sacrifice have you done other than for yourself? I want you to think that for a moment. Jesus did not have to die, but he died to regain his brothers to himself. After the faith says, I'm not ashamed to call you my brothers. Jesus gave up his life. He gave up his glory in heaven and he came down. Why? He was driven by love. He was driven by compassion. What has driven you to do stuff in life? Is it to gain something out of things? Or is it to say, it doesn't matter even if they don't pay me back? You see, brotherly love will bring you to a place where even if they don't say thank you, you are still grateful that you did it. Yeah. You see, we have taken offense when people have not said thank you. 
and I'm not even advocating to people who are not grateful, but in a moment where nobody has observed what you've done, are you going to stop? That's the first issue. Sacrificial love. It is costly. Secondly, this brother love is observant. It notices its environment. Brother love is observant. Says that if someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother, how observant are you? You see, when somebody tells you that my dad is sick today, do you follow up in the week to phone and say, how is your dad doing? You don't do that sometimes. When somebody says to you, I'm not feeling well in my body, do you follow on to find out how they're doing? Brotherly love is observant and brotherly love is responsive. You would find that even today, we are seated in our church, but we actually really don't know each other. When you're sitting to somebody for more than three weeks, you don't know their name. The next thing we just call them, hello brother. You're now ashamed to ask their name because you've known them for too long. <laughs> Have you been there before? You know, there's nothing that sounds as sweet as your own name. When somebody calls you by your name, it is, it, it's, it's really great. But do we know each other's names in this church? Have we opened our homes for others in this church? So brother's love, brother love is responsive. When we see a sister with child, and it's their first child especially, do we think that maybe let's do a baby shower for this sister? Or we wait for one of the leaders to come and say, have you, have you, done, a, have you done a baby shower for this sister before? How observant are we? When somebody is grieving in our church, sometimes we don't even get to know that somebody is grieving. Because one, the person is not comfortable to share their situation. Because when we come into a place and you still feel a stranger, you can't share certain stuff with strangers. Can you? When you go back into, into Acts in the early church, the Bible talks about how the church was united, had one heart and one mind, and no one was lacking anything. Why? The people who were well-to-do in that community sold their houses and their farms so that they can be provisioned for those who were in need. I want to challenge you this morning to reconsider how we've been doing life as a church. One of the reasons why we're encouraging people to be involved in a small group it is because we're saying in a small group context, that is where you can do life with somebody. You see, people stay in church if they make friends in church. If you're in church long enough and you haven't connected with somebody, your chances of dropping out of church are so high. You know why? People don't quit on God. They quit on people. They'll quit on me. They'll say, these guys don't care. But you see, before we throw stones, let's make sure that we are fine. Don't throw stones if you live in a glass house. If you haven't done the brotherly love thing, don't throw stones. So this challenge is for both. Those who just came into church and those who have been in church for a long time. So brotherly love is responsive. 
Brother love is practical in meeting the felt needs of people. You see, there shouldn't be, it should not be heard amongst us where people feel more comfortable out there to share their issues than they are with us here. Yeah. You see, in the early church, the Bible says believers gather together sharing the apostles' doctrine, breaking bread in prayer and in fellowship. That is what they were doing in the early church. And the question is, how much of that is taking place in this place? How much of breaking of bread are we doing in this year? We've got to really look at the way we do things. You see, the Bible says when they were doing that in the early church, many, many people were added to the church. Guess what? The key to the growth of our church is exercising brotherly love. It's one of the keys. Because when somebody walks through that door and they're a non-believer and they're just showered by people inviting them to their homes, guess what? They cannot refuse that kind of God. But they will refuse a God who when they came in, nobody paid attention to them. They're there standing by themselves in a corner waiting that somebody would come and talk to them. But we're in our cliques. That's right. Is your clique permeable? Or is your clique shut out from everyone else? You know what I'm talking about, cliques? After church, we congregate amongst ourselves. Guys who know each other, that's what we do. But when you come to church, it's time to look out and say, is there somebody lonely today that I can love on? Come on. Do you feel my heart this morning? Do you feel the heart of God this morning? Yes. We've got to really look at that. Could that be the reason why we've not been able to join a small group? Because this is the next question. Have we checked up on the small groups in our church? To actually say, I just want to know, are there small groups in this church? We've heard the announcement, but the announcement, the moment it says small group, it goes right over our heads. In a church of 120 people, 130 people, probably a fifth of that attend small groups. Are you a part of that fifth or a part of the four fifth? You see, that's the real issue we need to deal with. May the Lord help us to understand this whole issue of brotherly love. So finally, the, the one I want to share with us today is love for all men. So we've moved on from loving one another as believers, as people who are born again. But there's a place here that the Apostle Peter says to brotherly affection... Add love for everyone. I want you to know that what you do for yourself dies with you. But what you do for others outlives you. What you do for yourself, you're going to die with it, won't even remember it. But what you do for somebody else will always remember your ex. I'm reminded of Dorcas. The woman in the Bible who died. And the windows that she helped cry and say, no, she cannot go. Look at what she did. They brought clothes to Peter and said, look at what this woman did. Can you not do something? And because of that, Dorcas was brought back to life. Will people miss you today if you leave your community? If you leave church today, will you be missed for all good reasons? Because you might be missed because they will say, if he was, yeah, this is what he would have said. 
So what we do for others will outlive us. You see, when it comes to loving other people, the Bible requires us to love the unlovable. Do you have people in your life that are completely unlovable? And yet the Bible says, love all men. Now, I can translate this to our own families. First Timothy 5 verse 8, it says, yeah, But those who won't care for their relatives, especially those in their own household, have denied the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. Your mom, your dad in the rural areas, do you look after them? Or you, or you spend more money to, with friends? Or you pay more money to the church than you look after your own mom? The Bible says if you don't look after your own household, you're worse than an infidel. You see, there's a calling of our lives to give the type of love that the world cannot give. It's a type of love that is spiritual because it's in you because of the divine life that you have. Romans 13 verse 8 says, be indebted to no one. Are you in debt today? Do you owe somebody something? The Bible says, do not be in debt except to one another in love. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. I'm going to finish up by reading Luke chapter 6 verse 27 around this issue of, of loving other men. But to you who are willing to listen, and I thank God that we are willing to listen today. The Lord Jesus says, but to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Do you have enemies today? One requirement is to love them. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. Because when you love and you pray for somebody, it does something to your heart towards them. Pray for those who hurt you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. Hmm. If they hit you on one, give them the other. Figuratively speaking, what this scripture is talking about is being in that place where if, if people have hurt you, you do not withhold your love from others because of the hurt you have received. You keep on loving on them. If people from certain ethnic background have hurt on you, you, you will not stop loving those type of people because of what happened to you. You keep on loving them. Give to anyone who asks and when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for it? Even sinners love those who love them. It's easy to love those who love you. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great. You will truly be acting as children of the Most High God. For he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate just as your Father is compassionate. I think that scripture is self-explanatory here. That we've got to be different from the love given by the world. So basically as we come to the end of this series. 
There are four things that Peter says why we should add these things to our faith. There are four things that we we need to understand. The advantage of adding these seven elements to our walk with God, these seven elements to our faith in Jesus. He he says it here in 2 Peter 1.8. The more you grow like this, in other words, the more you walk in self-control, godliness, knowledge, perseverance, love, and all these seven elements, the more you grow in them, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The more productive you will become. But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. So dear brothers and sisters, work hard to prove that you really are among those God has called and chosen. Do these things and you will never fall away. Hallelujah. So when you walk in these seven things and they are growing in you, you become productive in your knowledge of Jesus. You no no longer live for now, you live even for the future in mind. You are not blind to what really matters in life. You are aware of what you are, what you are saved from, and what God wants you to do through your salvation. Glory be to God. Shall we stand on our feet? Let's, Let's just open our hands to the Lord.